The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 and also to Ephesians chapter 4, reading both of these texts. Ephesians 4 really further elaborates on the themes of Matthew 7. Dr. Rogers is on vacation for one more week. The associate pastors are doing this three-part series in terms of biblical peacemaking, a very important theme for all of us in our lives as we seek to approach conflict as an opportunity to glorify God, as we saw last week. This week, reading from both of these texts, beginning in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then turning to Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 29 and reading through the beginning of chapter 5. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. This morning we have before us scriptures that are very practical and also very convicting, taking the log out of our eye in situations that involve some degree of conflict is very much part and parcel of all of our lives. It's something that is vitally important, for example, in marriage. In fact, Taking the log out is one of the chapters of the premarital materials that we go over with couples getting married. Taking the log out applies in our families, our jobs, most certainly in the church. If you've been involved in service or leadership in the church at all, you know that the church is easily troubled with internal conflict. It applies in friendships, in neighborhoods, in politics and government. It applies on sports teams. It applies when you go shopping at the grocery store. In all situations of life involving any kind of relationships, taking the log out is important. Why is getting the log out of our own eye so important? Well, the answer is along the lines that because we will not glorify God in our relationships with others, and we will not truly help or edify or build up others 
if we do not take the log out of our own eye first. The problem is taking the log out of our eye is contrary to our natural instincts. It's easy for us to focus on the other person's faults or sins, that speck Jesus talks about, while we ignore the, the, the log in our own eye. Jesus, in this teaching, is clearly using humor in an illustration that's bizarre to even imagine. Some of you kids probably hear this and just kind of imagine someone walking around with a log sticking out of their eye. But, sadly, it's frequently true for each of us in our relationships, and God calls us to a different way, to a way of genuine humility and love in dealing with other people in our lives. We want to see first, what does it mean to take the log out of our eye? What does it mean to take the log out? Getting the log out means that we are willing to first search our own hearts and humble ourselves before God. That's the essence of taking the log out, humbling ourselves before God and being willing to confess our own sin first, even when we're sure that that other person is 90% in the wrong and we're only in the 10% wrong. Confess that 10% first. That's taking the log out. It means that we repent of wrong words or wrong attitudes before we are quick to confront others. It means that we have a heart humbled by Christ's love and grace in view of our own sin so that we are not so surprised or self-righteous when we encounter sin in people around us. Think about what happens in a typical situation of conflict. In conflict, we easily become preoccupied with my rights and, correspondingly, your wrongs. I desire this or that. You have offended my rights. You are standing in the way of my agenda for my life, so you must be wrong. And so, what do we do? Our first reaction is typically we defend ourselves. Or we think of our demands as righteous, and we typically lash out and punish the other person, either in low-level, subtle ways of withdrawing or emotional, silent treatment of some kind, or maybe even in more active, direct ways of harsh and demeaning words or even actions. Our hearts go wrong, and it comes out in the bad fruit of our words and actions. We know that Jesus says elsewhere, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he lists all kinds of sins. He's talking about the fact that all these outward sins have an inward root in our hearts. What are some of the typical logs in our eyes that we need to take out? Well, defensiveness is one. How about self-righteousness and pride? We're not going to be able to bless or build up somebody else when we're stuck in our own pride and self-righteousness. Or what about lack of love, that we aren't really loving the other person at that moment? We're too concerned with our own agenda. Or self-pity, you could call it the martyr spirit. Don't we know how to fall into that in some way? Or a, a godlike attitude of judgment, godlike meaning small g, that we set ourselves up as God and we think the world should work as we say it should. And by the way, if you find yourself thinking that everyone around you is an idiot, then certainly you have that log in your eye. 
How about a self-centered agenda? Or maybe to put it in more subtle terms, an agenda that I hold on to too tightly. And watch out if you get in the way of my agenda. Well, we could go on and on about the way these logs are in our, our eyes. Very often, the log in our heart, in terms of our, our attitude and what we really are loving and worshiping and valuing, is reflected in the words that we speak to those around us. Something is wrong if you can't honestly see ways in which God intends to change the way you tend to sin in the words that you speak. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, we see Paul summarize some of those ways that it comes out. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This is a very searching verse. It's not a comprehensive verse, but it certainly hits some of the highlights of some of the, the unwholesome words. We're told, do not let any unwholesome words come out of our mouths. Verse 29, and the word for unwholesome really connotes rottenness. Don't let there be any rotten words in your mouth. Angry words. Impatient words. If you are angry with the person you're trying to confront, I guarantee you, your anger will not help you deal with them and resolve the conflict. In fact, it will be a stumbling block both to that person and to you. Unkind words, critical, bitter words, bitter words that spring from an unforgiving heart. Words of envy or jealousy or pride or contentious words, words of self-righteousness and selfishness, words that can even be malicious or hateful, irritable, grumbling, complaining words. The list goes on and on in terms of the kinds of things that we need to take out before we can really help someone else, the way that our words and our hearts can go wrong. Stop and think about your relationships with the people in your lives and where you tend to go wrong. And most often, this is with the people we're closest to, our family, our loved ones. This is the time of the year for family vacation, right? And just picture the family piling into the family van, all smiles and ready to get on the road. And you know what almost happens immediately? Some little thing comes up. And a conflict erupts, and words are spoken, and then everybody's sitting there stewing, you know, or um, you didn't take the turn that you should have taken, and, you know, it's somebody else's fault. Must be my wife. She was the one that was telling me which way to go. No, Patty's actually better than I am at navigating, so I can never blame her. Conflict is very much a part of our everyday lives. And the words that come out are a reflection of the war within our hearts, as James says. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within you? But God calls us to get rid of these unwholesome words by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent of both our words, our actions, and our heart attitudes, to take the log out and to trust Jesus Christ for his help and to replace these words with words that spring from a different spirit. And that brings us to our second point. How does taking the log out help you to minister 
to others? How does taking the log out help you to minister to others? Jesus says, before we take the speck out of our brother's eye, take the log out of our own. In other words, you can't take out the speck before you take out the log. And so it is in in Ephesians 4.29, don't let any corrupting talk or unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the goal, giving grace to those who hear us. Taking the log out puts you in a position or in an attitude that enables you to see more clearly that other person's speck, that need or concern, and to be less encumbered in order to help them. To put it in spiritual terms, if I am humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ and by His love, if I am standing in the gospel of grace, knowing that my salvation is completely based on God's unmerited favor to me in Jesus Christ, and if I am walking with Christ, keeping short accounts with God, daily confessing my sin and my need to Him, and rejoicing in His mercy and His love for me every day, then I am where God wants me to be, to be able to minister His grace to others. I'm not encumbered by a log in my eye. The other year, I was trimming a viburnum bush in our yard, and viburnum bushes have these leaves that are kind of fuzzy, little tiny needle-like things uh, on their on their leaf that you wouldn't notice if you just held it, but one fell down and just brushed over my eye. I didn't even know it at the time. And in the days and weeks to come, I always felt like I had something in my eye. I had Patty look at it. I went to the doctor to look at it. And then I finally went to the ophthalmologist. And this was after weeks, and I had been living with this speck in my eye. And he said, we'll take care of that right away. Your eye is formed like a little cyst over it. It's in the white of your eye. I just want you to do this. I'm going to numb your eye with some drops. And then I want you to look at that picture on the wall. And I'm just going to take it out with this little hot probe. And I just thought, you're not, wow, you're not going to stabilize my eye so it doesn't shake around. He said, no, just look over there and I'll do it. And I just thought, okay, John, look over there. <laughs> I'm trusting you, right? Now, he did it. All I heard was a little tss, and that was it. And then it recovered the next few days. But you can be sure that if I would have seen a log sticking out of his eye, I would have said, back off, doctor, you know, stay away from my eye. But it was wonderful, and that did it. I wanted that doctor to be able to see very clearly. So if we're going to minister to somebody else, keep that illustration in your mind. Nobody likes somebody else to touch their eye. You have to really be good to do that. And if you have the log of a self-centered attitude I guarantee you, you will not be of much help, if any help at all. Whenever your words come out of your self-serving, self-centered agenda, and not an agenda that's focused on the Lord, then your words will always fail to help the other person. If your agenda is to win the argument, if your agenda is to prove that you are right and the other person is wrong, if your agenda is to show that you are superior or more righteous than that other person, or if your agenda is to control the other person or to get your way or to put yourself in a better light, if any of these are true, then you are not really aiming to help that other person to the glory of God. No, rather you are stuck in your own selfishness. And the goal is not to win the argument. The goal 
is to consider what that person needs. What is his or her genuine need in this situation? What your husband or your wife needs, what your child needs, what your close friend, what your discipleship partner might need, or your your fellow employee or fellow student at work or at school, and then to reflect the character of Christ as you understand what that person needs and where that person is, and to build them up with wise words. You may have won a thousand arguments, but you may not have glorified God at all in that. Don't we all know what it's like to be on the receiving end of words that fail this test of being words that build up? How did it feel when your son's baseball coach harshly yelled at him for something he did with little regard for how those words tore down your son as a person? Or what about your doctor who maybe had very poor bedside manner when he talked to you and spoke to you in the midst of your pain in a manner that seemed oblivious to this goal of building up? Or what about your daughter? Don't all parents have an extra special care for daughters? Yes, we love our sons and we, love, we care for them too, but think about your daughter. What kind of husband do you want your daughter to wake up to the rest of her life when she gets married? Do you want her to wake up every day to a husband who is peaceable and considerate of her and who shows true humility in his love for her and his care for her, aiming at her well-being? Or do you want some husband who is going to be harsh? And we all know what the answer is to that. If you can say amen to those illustrations when you're on the receiving end, then realize God's will for you to do likewise in the way you deal with others in your life. In fact, think about it this way. Someone has said it this way. If you've lost the person, you've lost. If you've lost the person, then no matter how compelling your arguments may be, you've already lost. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I have all knowledge, in other words, I can win all the debates, but I don't have love, I have nothing. Yes, there's a time for contending for the truth. Certainly, we're called to contend for the truth. There's a, there's a time for challenging and confronting. The Christian is called to the whole spectrum of the ways that we might speak and talk. But even at these times, Scripture makes it clear that you must contend and confront with forbearance and patience and kindness and love and with the goal of that other person's spiritual good. So that when you're finished talking, that other person may be thinking, well, I may not agree with what you have said, but I appreciate the way you've said it to me. And that in and of itself in some way shows Christ and glorifies God. The other year for a Wednesday summer series, we had a college professor tell us about teaching students these days, and he was talking about postmodernism and how he interacts with that in his philosophy classes. Postmodernism is basically a worldview that says there is no absolute truth. And it was interesting how this professor came to the end of his talk, and he explained about what really convinces his students who might have a a radical postmodern mindset. In other words, they really reject all absolute truth. What begins to convince them of the truth? And he said, in his experience, arguments have a place, and certainly that's the case, but he's found that he can lecture for 10 classrooms about why postmodernism is wrong, and it probably won't have the same effect as a student 
seeing the reality of the love of Jesus Christ in another person's life, in another student's life, maybe in a professor's life. The reality of seeing that incarnate in someone's life is very powerful. You see, it's got to be more than mere words or arguments. We have to speak and act and live in accordance with Christ's love, which always aims at building up. And so I ask, what about your relationships to people around you? With others who do not belong to you, they belong to God. And your relationships with those people belong to God. He has put you in these relationships, and His purpose is that you minister to them where they are. Is that person weak or fearful or discouraged or anxious? Your goal is to somehow help them to look to Jesus Christ. If there is anger or conflict or disagreement, then you're called to biblically be a peacemaker and take the log out so that you are able to better help them. This is always the goal for the words that come out of our mouths, to truly build up. And this is what taking the log out helps us to do. Well, finally, our third point, how do I experience God's power to get the log out and so minister grace to those around me? How do I experience God's power to do this? And the answer is, we must live daily in a grace-oriented relationship to God through Jesus Christ. The end of verse 29 in Ephesians 4 says that it may give grace to those who hear. We can't give grace unless we have first received grace. We have to first experience God's grace in our lives. We have to come to God through Jesus Christ and the gospel and receive his grace that he abundantly gives. We take it by faith. We trust in him. And then we are called to continually live in that grace on a daily basis. It's interesting, the next verse in verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What a wondrous thing this is. Christians have been sealed for the day of redemption. And so we're not to grieve the Spirit who has sealed us, who dwells within us. Being humbled by the greatness and glory of God and being comforted by the gospel. That is how we experience the power of God, to take the log out and to minister grace. And we know that the Bible tells us that it is very normal that the people we will deal with will sometimes be difficult to love. Does that surprise us? Does it surprise us there are people in the road as you go out of here today who might cut you off? Does it surprise you? Uh, We live in a fallen and sinful world, and it's easy to see other people's sins. And sometimes you and I are the difficult people to love, even We want to believe that. But grace says this. Living in grace says, I understand these people because I was once like them. I had the same sin and blindness in my heart. In fact, I am still like them many times. I still struggle with remaining sin. But God has set me free. He has freely and fully forgiven me in Christ. And now, by grace, I understand sin. 
It doesn't take me by surprise. I understand sin because I have stood before the cross of Jesus Christ, which has exposed my sin. It's exposed my pride and my self-centeredness and my critical spirit and the fact that I always want to serve my own agenda. The cross has stripped me of this tendency in my heart to be self-justifying. I have experienced the love of Jesus Christ, and so I have been disarmed. And I can no longer relate to others in the old way. And I know that it's only by the restraining power of the Holy Spirit that I don't fall into worse sin. In fact, considering all the grace that I have received, I should be a lot better than I am now. And grace shows you that your weaknesses are too strong for you, and that without the reign of Jesus Christ in your heart, by the power of the Spirit, without mediating the Spirit mediating the power of the Word of God to you day by day, without the Holy Spirit enabling you to put to death sin, even the sins of our words, then we're without hope. We need that grace daily from God. I understand the sin and need of others because I myself stand daily before the cross and I stand in God's grace alone. Look how Paul turns to this point at the end of chapter 4, Ephesians 4, when he's given this list of the kinds of sins that we fall into, and he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are able to begin to imitate Christ to some degree because we are dearly loved children. We are beloved, it says. The Father lovingly sent the Son. The Son, by His great kindness and mercy, identified with us in our sin and our brokenness and our shame and purchased our salvation for us by His life and death, this fragrant offering unto God. And the Spirit who saw us dead in our sins worked in grace to breathe in us new life. This provision God has given us so that our words begin to help others and not hurt them, this provision is the life and power of the gospel of grace. And what a wondrous thing it is. How do you take the log out and communicate in a grace-filled way? Basically, it's this, that you see yourself as a debtor standing only by grace, and you see that other person as an heir of God or as a potential heir of God. That person is not an obstacle to be overcome. That person, he or she, is not an enemy to be destroyed or an opponent to be conquered. No, that person is in need of God's grace and mercy just like you and I are in need of God's grace and mercy. And God may want to use you to demonstrate that mercy. When you consider your interactions with others, you always need to come back to this question, what is my present attitude and relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I experiencing his power and grace today? Am I standing in his grace, being more and more satisfied with him alone. Someone has asked it this way, do I see Jesus Christ principally as a gracious Savior 
or do I see him principally as a law giver? If principally you view Jesus Christ as a law giver who makes demands of you, whose basic disposition to you is that he says, try harder. If you get your act together, then I'll bless you. Maybe you're here at worship this morning with that mentality, and that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if this is your view, Jesus Christ as a law giver, more than as a gracious Savior, then you will end up being one of two different ways. One is this. You will end up frustrated with yourself because you do fall short. And so you will be demanding of others and easily lashing out at the people around you and justifying yourself, even to those who are most dear to you. Or the second reaction, you will be pridefully judgmental and arrogant and condescending in the way you treat others because you think you're doing pretty well. And it may not be overtly obvious that you think that way, but that's the message you'll end up communicating to those around you. But if instead you principally view Jesus Christ as your gracious Savior as the one who mercifully delivered you from sin and death and hell and from your own sinful, self-serving agenda to life, then your demeanor will be more and more patient and gracious. You will not need to prove anything to anyone. You will not need to make others look bad so that you can feel good about yourself. No, these things will characterize you less and less because you are living daily in a grace-oriented relationship to Jesus Christ. Why is the Bible so concerned about our hearts and about our words, both the message we speak and the way we speak it? Whether you're talking to the checkout person at the grocery store or your own child, God is so concerned about our words because every time we speak, we have the opportunity to reveal Jesus Christ in some way. We have the opportunity to show his beauty and grace, even if it's only a small way. Your words and the way you say them stand as a representation of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, Jesus Christ did not come to simply expose our sin and shame and to leave us in judgment and wrath. Thanks be to God. Jesus came to save. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to bind up our wounds, and we are called to do likewise with both our words and our lives. You can be certain that this week you will be given opportunity to do good or to do ill with your words. You will be given opportunity to see the log in your eye, to take it out, and then be able to minister grace. It may even be in the car on the way home from church, you will be given an opportunity to do that. The way you interact with a person tomorrow morning may fall into that category. If you've come to know and experience God's grace in Jesus Christ, then by his power, may your words be full of grace to the glory of his name. Amen. Father, we we know that we fall short in many ways, but we thank you that we are not what we once were because of the love of Jesus Christ. And we pray for your help as we live out in our daily lives this calling of the gospel to take the log out, to let our words minister grace to the hearers, to reflect the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. What a high and holy calling this is, 
And we thank you that it sanctifies every moment of life, every relationship we have. Thank you that you enable us and that you empower us and that you promise that you will help us to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.